Hello and welcome to another episode of the Bunker Daily. We're nearing the end of President Trump's first and hopefully only term, and it will have been a traumatic four years for America and the world, upending many assumptions about what can and can't happen in democratic politics. Two days after his election, my guest today wrote an article called Autocracy Rules for Survival. Now they've published an eye-opening book called Surviving Autocracy. Marsha Gesson is a staff writer at The New Yorker and the author of several books, including The Man Without a Face, a biography of Vladimir Putin, and The Future is History, How Totalitarianism Reclaimed Russia, which won the National Book Award for Nonfiction and is one of the best books I've read in the past decade. Thank you so much. Uh, Genuinely is. Um, They grew up in Russia and later worked there for over two decades as a journalist before moving to the US permanently in 2013. Hi, Marsha. Thanks for joining me. Hi, thank you for having me. So I reread your 2016 article and there's there's nothing in it that, that doesn't hold up. But at the time, I remember some people found this kind of analysis uh, alarmist and, and pessimistic. Do you think that you could see the threat more clearly than some people because you had a different set of reference points? Yes and no. So let me tell you how that article came about because it's kind of a, a, a funny story. It was election night uh, 2016. I, like many Americans, went to an election watching party that became very, very sad I left trying not to say goodbye to the host, like many people. And as I was biking home, I started getting text messages and phone calls from friends asking, you know, what do we do now? And I thought, well, that's pretty ridiculous. And we have a thunderstorm. It's, it's like sound effects for your uh, election night anecdote. I know. So, so yeah, so people were texting me and calling me and asking, what do we do now? And I thought, well, it's it's funny to ask me, considering that I'm living in exile. Obviously, I would be the last person I'd ask. But as I was riding my bike, I thought, maybe there are things I know. Right? Is there something that I have learned that they don't know yet? Like, if my assignment were to write a letter from the future, what would it be? And the article is very much about kind of psychic and mental survival under conditions of mushy reality, which is something that I could see coming. And I think most Americans couldn't because they'd never experienced it before. But we had had a year and a half of Trump campaigning for president. So it's not like uh, you had to have some sort of incredible magical binoculars to, uh, to be able to see what he's saying. You just had to have the, the keys to deciphering what it would mean in the next few years. And one of the characteristics of this period has been um, some nervousness about misapplying words, wondering whether, you know, fascist or totalitarian or whatever are appropriate. You're very careful in the words you use and you settle on the phrase, an autocratic attempt. Um, Can you explain why that seemed to you to be the kind of clearest way of describing what's happening? Well, as a writer, I try to both use words that are most accurate, but also words that um, that are most effective, right? So a lot of Americans and non-Americans use the word authoritarian to mean anything under the sun, basically anything that's not democratic. I get very annoyed with the use of the word authoritarian because to me, as somebody who spent many, many years writing about totalitarianism, that's a word that's used, actually often used as a pair with totalitarianism to describe some things that totalitarianism is, that are not totalitarian, right? But that are the rule of 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 one man or a group of men, but it's a very different kind of politics. And I don't think it's accurate actually in describing Donald Trump. Autocracy is a more general term. Uh, Both authoritarianism and totalitarianism are subcategories of autocracy. 
but it's also a very useful term because it hasn't been used that much. So I think it makes people think, oh, you know, and ask the question, why are you using the word autocracy? Now, the term autocratic attempt comes from the work of Hungarian sociologist Valent Magyar, who has been writing for many years uh, about Hungary and other post-communist countries, but also about the use of language in political science. The point that he makes that I think is super important is that in 1989, when the Soviet bloc collapsed, we started using the language of liberal democracy to describe what was going on there for two reasons. One, because we just assumed that that's what was going to happen because it was the end of history and liberal democracy was our destiny. And two, because the language of liberal democracy is the language of political science, right? We always talk about in terms of free and fair elections, freedom of the media, individual liberties. But if those things are absent from the phenomena, right? If they're not just exceptions to a system, but if they're not even part of the system in any meaningful way, then we're not contributing to describing what's actually happening. Or as Major puts it, you can say that the elephant cannot swim, you can say that the elephant cannot fly, but you're not describing the elephant. And he has, he has a book coming out actually later this summer, it's a thousand-page tome on autocracies in post-communist Europe, and he proposes there, there are three stages, autocratic attempt, autocratic breakthrough, and autocratic consolidation. And autocratic attempt is the stage during which it's still possible to reverse the autocracy by electoral means. And so I think that at least until November, formally, we're in the autocratic attempt stage of, of, of autocracy. And it's, it's an incredibly useful model because he's so detailed. There's also a little bit of poetic justice attached to bringing the language from Eastern Europe and, uh, and seeing that it fits better than, than you might expect. Well, I remember people, I mean, I don't hear this conversation so much anymore, but I remember people wondering if at the beginning, if, you know, Pence would be scarier if something happened to Trump and Pence took over, because Pence seemed to actually sort of believe in something, um, seemed to have more of that sort of a fanaticism. Do you think Trump's lack of an ideological agenda makes him more or less dangerous than someone like Putin, who does have an agenda? You know, I think that there's um, there's a common misconception uh, and, and a common fallacy that is perfectly understandable uh, in in just the way we think about history, including the most recent history, which is we tend to always overprivilege ideology. And partly it's just because history is written on the basis of written documents, right, which also overprivilege ideology. But, uh, but, and partly it's our innate desire to make comprehensible stories out of very, very messy human histories. So we look back on Hitler and talk about him as having this ideology. If you read contemporary accounts, people actually write that he has no ideology, that it's a hodgepodge, that he is a complete ideological opportunist, that he picks up an idea and he has a sixth sense for when it has traction with his audience. Uh, but that's all the use that he has for any ideas, right? Um, and even the late Soviet leaders, I think, had absolutely no, no, no use for ideology. And certainly Putin uh, retrofits ideology, instrumentalizes ideology, but is by no means driven, driven by ideology, right? So I think in that sense, he's actually quite similar to Trump. And I think that maybe a unifying feature, feature certainly of contemporary autocrats, right? The ones that we're seeing around the world 
right now. Uh, they're they're united in what they believe power is and how it operates and how it ought to operate and and what they deserve and what they're entitled to. But they don't seem to have any kind of strongly expressed ideology. So, uh, and to answer your question about Pence, I don't know. I I think Pence would have been much more of a normal Republican president, which at this stage in the development of the Republican Party in the United States would be pretty bad, but probably not worse. I mean, Pence uh, is not uh, opposed to the entire sort of American project uh, of aspirational and kind of dignified government. There's a great section in the middle of the book where you talk about uh, Trump's relationship with reality um, and his use of what you call the power lie or bully lie. Um, and obviously people are used to thinking that there is, there is a standard politician's repertoire of lies. Um, can you just explain what the, what, why the power lie is different, what its goals are? I think most people and most politicians lie in order to convince you of something that is counterfactual um, and that you do not currently believe. But they lie to convince you that the dog ate their homework, right? Um, Trump lies about things that are empirically and immediately provable, like the weather. And I think that's that's a different kind of lie. And this is actually something that makes him really similar to, to Vladimir Putin, who also uses the power lie. And the message of the power lie is the bully's message. It's I'm, uh, I, I can say whatever I want, whenever I want to, and there's nothing you can do about it. It is largely addressed to the media. There's nothing you can do about covering it. You have to cover it. It, it will ha- exert its corrupting influence on you, even, uh, e- even, even though you know it's false and you, and, and you make your best effort to cover it in a way that mitigates it. I am still putting you in the position of reporting something that is patently absurd. And then I might still turn around and, and, and say, oh, I was just kidding, making you look like, uh, like a fool. And, and that's, that's, that's a real bully tactic. It's not about the lie itself. It's about the, the power to speak. And the way that Trump makes language meaningless uh, sort of resembles the way that the totalitarians have often um, deliberately tried to sort of break down meaning, but they seem to have done it um, in, in a very sort of intentional, sort of systematic way. With Trump, do you think it is a deliberate goal or just a byproduct of his of the way that he seems to talk all the time? It's very hard for me to believe that anything with Trump is actually a deliberate goal. <laughs> I think that he's a man of instincts and, and intuition. I think he has a strong sort of aesthetic sense of what he is imitating, what he's performing. And I think he has a strong sense of what it takes to dominate in the information sphere. And so he does two things to render language useless as a tool of shared reality. One is he uses words to mean they're opposite. And you're right, that's something that totalitarian regimes did. Not exactly in the way that George Orwell described it in 1984, where you actually had a glossary, you know, of uh, war means peace. It was more. It was more dynamic. It was more. You kind of had to l- have your ear to the ground and and catch what particular brand of freedom means on freedom 
you were supposed to think on this particular day, but still it was usually the language of, of, of democracy and politics that was used to mean its opposite. In post-communist Russia, in Putin's Russia, words are often used to just mean nothing, right? They will use political language, but also other language. Like Putin will use the language of bureaucracy figures just to, just to create lots and lots of static and haze, right? But, uh, but Putin w- will also use terms like dictator- dictatorship of the law or managed democracy. Like, what the hell does that mean? It's, it's a kind of signifier that, that is indecipherable and that has almost sort of talismanic virtue. And um, Trump also uses words to just create static. He will pile things up. He, he, will, he will create lots and lots of haze. And so you never feel like you can get your bearings. Right, and where he uses words to mean their opposite, it's often words. It's actually pretty funny if you think about it, right? It's it's it's, it's words and phrases that describe power relationships. He will turn those on, on on their head all the time. He will say that he is the victim of a witch hunt, which the most powerful man in the universe cannot be the victim of a witch hunt. You have to have less power than the people who are witch hunting you hmm. uh, in order to be the victim of, of a witch hunt. Um, he will. He uses the word, the term "fake news" to mean real newspapers. But in general, you know, it's it creates a situation where it becomes more and more difficult to just speak among ourselves and and have that create make politics possible. And you talked about how the autocratic attempt, you know, it was still just an attempt, at least until November. And if Joe Biden wins the election, then then that attempt will be. Halted, but from your um, you know writing your recent interviews, obviously you're kind of thinking about a lot of other things that need to happen. It is kind of, you can't just go back to normal. What do you think America needs to do, or a, a President Biden or the Democratic Party, whatever, would need to do to repair this damage and prevent the emergence in 2024 or 2028 of a similar but probably cleverer version of Trump? You know, I think we have to give up, and and I think that that will be obvious even to, to to Joe Biden. We have to give up any illusion of returning to pre-Trump and normalcy for two reasons. One is that that wasn't a very great normal, and the other is that there is no returning. There has been a lot of lasting damage done, and that damage, uh, if anything, gives us an opportunity for reinvention. And, and I would say obligates us to reinvent politics uh, in a way that, that, that will move us forward and that will address the anxieties and, uh, and fears and, and displacements and, and inequality that is in part responsible for giving us Donald Trump. And obviously when you're writing about the present, it's like as soon as let, you, know, you send off your final uh, edit, you know, something happens. In this case, some very big things have happened. Um, but with the pandemic and the protests springing from George Floyd's death and, and Black Lives Matter, do you, have they changed your analysis in any way? Maybe tipped you in a more, I don't know, a more hopeful direction or a less? I'm just wondering um, how, how you might rewrite the final chapter if you were doing it now. Well, I mean, I, I did rework the book in April quite thoroughly. So uh, it reflects the pandemic throughout and uh, 
it, it was quite a battle with, with my editor to be able to do that because it was already in proofs. But fortunately, you know, as I was revising it uh, for the coronavirus, I realized that my analysis holds completely firm. It's, it was basically a, a matter of, of inserting a bunch of examples so that it didn't feel like a letter from pre-corona past. And um, as for the protests, I think the protests really embody the future-oriented politics and moral asp- uh, and aspirational politics that I write about hoping for in the book. And they have made me really hopeful, more hopeful than I've been in a very, very long time, that, that we're going to be able to come out of this better than, than we went in. That's great. I was, I, was, I, was, I was trying to make sure that we ended on, a, uh, on, on the rare note. Of right. there. <laughs> Thanks so much for joining me, Marsha Gesson. Thank you so much. Surviving Autocracy is published by Granta, and you can follow Marsha's journalism in The New Yorker. The Bunker Daily comes out every Monday, Tuesday, Thursday and Friday, with a full-length weekly episode every Wednesday. Thanks for listening. Take care. We'll see you next time. The Bunker Daily was presented by Dorian Linsky. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producer was Jacob Archbold. And audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. Bunker Daily is a podcast production.